Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. Today, we're going to be speaking with Petra Costa, whose new film is The Edge of Democracy. Yeah. Have you seen this movie? I haven't. So it's a documentary about the political situation in Brazil for the past maybe 20 years, maybe about 30. And it's about the rise of Lula, the fall of Lula. The leftist leader who... Right. A celebrated leftist leader who was beloved in Brazil and seemingly around the world by the left. And his fall and eventual imprisonment. Mm. And the rise of Bolsonaro, who won the Brazilian election last year. And the hit job that was essentially arranged on Dilma, who was Lula's acolyte, who was president of Brazil. I have not yet seen this film, but the filmmaker, she has a relationship to politics, right? Her family was involved in Brazilian politics? She does. Well, she comes from a family where her parents are leftists and were jailed when they were younger. And so she shows that as well in the in the film. So there's a really personal side mm. to all of this. But then also her grandfather made his fortune through the construction business. And the construction business is really intimately involved in the massive corruption schemes in Brazil and in Brazilian government. And it's part of the reason for Lula's eventual fall. Mm. Uh, yeah, so she feels implicated, I think, in a in a number of ways, or at least her family does. Uh, sounds really good. It's really yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I and I think something that happens when you're engaging with world politics, at least for me, is that I gather news from headlines. Not always, obviously, <laughs> it'll take some time to read some articles, but you don't always have the time to read everything. And so my understanding had been, well, it seems perfectly reasonable that Dilma was corrupt and was taken down by a new court. But then when you see this movie, you realize what actually happened. And it really explains the rise of the right and essentially a neo-fascist party Mm -hmm. in Brazil. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. Okay. And you're joined here with our co-host, Eric Newman. Yes. Well, let's listen to that interview. Okay, let's do it. We're excited to have filmmaker Petra Costa with us today in the studio to talk about her latest movie, The Edge of Democracy. While her previous film, Elena, appeared at numerous international film festivals, her latest work looks at the erosion of democracy in Brazil from her participation in the landmark election of Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, known to most as Lula, through the scandal that brought down both Lula and his successor Dilma Rousseff and led to the rise of Jair Bolsonaro. Welcome to the show, Petra. Thank you. Just to zoom out a little bit, can you give our listeners a sense of the kind of sweep of Brazilian political history that you're covering in the film? Yes. So the film is very much about my relationship as a citizen to Brazilian democracy. I was born more or less at the same time as Brazilian democracy. Mm -hmm. And I thought that we would both mature and get stronger together. So I thought that in our 30s, we would be really great. (laughs) And... It comes from the realization that was not the case. So in 2016, I start to see a huge political crisis that brought people to the streets against corruption, but many asking for the return of the military. 
So to tell that story, I kind of flash back and start from my parents who fought against the military dictatorship for many years and for the establishment of democracy in Brazil, accompanying very much the work of Lula, who was a union worker that brought thousands of Brazilians to protest, first just for better salaries, but then started the Workers' Party, which was a very strong progressive party. And he tried to get to the presidency several times, ran and lost, ran and lost, until eventually he decided to compromise with the elite, got into power, was quite successful, had like 10 years of very good um, economic success and brought the country to the global stage in many ways, securing the Olympics and the World Cup, and elected his successor, who was our first female president. And that's more or less when things started to collapse because an economic crisis came and a huge corruption scandal Mm -hmm. and our first female president was impeached and the film shows how her impeachment was extremely controversial in some ways similar to what might have happened had Hillary won I imagine because her opponent never recognized her victory and then Once she was impeached, her vice president, who plotted much of her impeachment, won. And audio leaks started to come out, revealing that many politicians behind her impeachment were interested in her impeachment because they saw it as the way that they would not be caught by those corruption investigations. Mm. So I want to slow down a little bit and go back to your family, because your relationship to your parents and your family's relationship to the politics of Brazil shaped the story in many ways. So as you mentioned earlier, your parents were political activists, very much so, very very active, in fact, were arrested when they were younger. How did you grow up with this past that they had? Mm-hmm. How was it present in your childhood? It was very present. I mean, I felt that my parents, that democracy was somehow my birthright because my parents had spent their lives fighting for it. But at the same time, as I was coming of age and Brazil was reaching this kind of political and economic success, I felt that it was taken care of. Mm -hmm. And my role as a citizen was only to vote every four years and things were getting better and equality was being diminished. More and more people were getting out of misery and entering the middle class. Brazil, which had suffered hunger for ages, finally managed to solve the problem of hunger and people were no longer suffering of hunger. And I even felt that I could dedicate myself to more personal psychological films because things were taken care of. And it was quite a shock to see that that was not the case, that democracy is actually something that's very vulnerable and is never really there for sure. (laughs) Did you see your parents relax during that period of time? Yes, they also relaxed, yeah. Interesting. And what did that look like? It looked, I mean, they were still active in many ways and working for social justice, but they, there was the general feeling that things were just getting better. better. Yeah, You mentioned this already, but so tell us when you start getting a sense that, okay, things are actually getting worse. So Dilma takes over Lula's position as president. She's the first female president, as you said. Yes. So when Dilma is elected, first there's a huge joy in just seeing that it was possible for us to elect a female president. And Mm -hmm. then... It appeared casual, by the way, to the rest of the world, I think. 
casual. Yeah, that, well, just because it seems like such a battle here mm-hmm. in so many ways. We're like, well, look, at Brazil just did it. Yeah. But of course it, it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then her government was not as exciting as Lula's government mm. in many ways because first they had to make more and more deals with the political establishment, which is, we call PMDB, which is like the party that was the oldest party and very much corrupt in many ways. So since she was a political novice, they had to give more and more to this other party, which meant her government became more and more conservative. So instead of mm. the feeling like, oh, more time and power, we're becoming more and more progressive, we're going to get more and more rights, it was like less and less and less. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't even ask for, I mean, I wanted abortion to be legalized in Brazil, and that was impossible to even think of mm-hmm. because they needed so much the evangelical base to be able to be in power. Everything was a matter of like, no, we have to give that, we have to give that to be able to stay in power. Mm-hmm. So it became much less exciting, and she l- slowly started to lose her progressive base, mm. trying to please the more conservatives, which never really liked her. And so she started losing both sides. And when the economic crisis began in 2014, and she, no one thought she would because her popularity had already gone down quite a bit, but she managed to get reelected in the tightest election we've ever had. Her opponent did not accept her victory and started to ask for impeachment the day after her election, practically. And that created a huge division in society. And then for the perfect storm, the greatest corruption investigation began in Brazil. And all parties were involved, but in the beginning, the focus was the Workers' Party. And the leaks that came out through The Intercept quite recently show a lot of how this corruption investigation was conducted. It was conducted by a judge who was acting both as judge and prosecutor in the case and really focusing a lot on the Workers' Party and managed to get Lula into jail when he was the leader-up candidate for the next election. Just to kind of tie some of these things together, one of the things that I found fascinating in the documentary is that you talk at several moments about how there has a kind of wall has arisen dividing two Brazils, one that wants a more progressive Brazil, another one that wants a more conservative Brazil. And it was interesting to me in a corruption scandal that was really about economics, right, which was about the capitalist class colluding with the government to get like payoffs and all those kind of things, like the car wash scandal, for example. But pretty soon, the kind of public speaking figures, at least on the right, started appealing immediately to questions about gender identity, homosexuality, abortion. So I'm just wondering if those social issues were already boiling over in Brazil, or if that was something that the right kind of used as a wedge issue to get at Dilma and also then at the legacy of Lula. Both. I mean, the evangelical population has been growing exponentially in Brazil in the past few years. Okay. And so has the political evangelical class. So in the 80s, there was one evangelical congressman in Brazil. Today, there's 200. Do you have any sense as to why that is? That does seem quite dramatic. It is very dramatic, and it's changing radically the shape and form of Brazilian society. Catholicism is on the fall all over the world, Mm -hmm. and the evangelicals managed to find a way and a very attractive kind of social tie in Brazilian society. Then in every street you will find an evangelical church, and they've been spreading immensely. And 
They've been very wise in many ways. They managed to be in the television and radios, mm. and, and they have a power plan mm. that is working really well. <laughs> so one of the things that you really dive into in this documentary is the car wash scandal, which is what you were mentioning before. It's fascinating to watch because when you're outside of it, if you're reading headlines, Dilma's impeachment looks reasonable. <laughs> you know, where, well, you know, many politicians are corrupt. It's not surprising to me that this one might be corrupt. And so, yeah, on face value, I can see why this would be happening. But you really break down the various things that lead to this and the various things that come out of it and that eventually lead to Bolsonaro becoming president. So would you explain a little bit the car wash, so what that was, and the kind of, it's almost a hit on Dilma, I think, like a hit job in taking her down and really paving the way. So I'll try to explain. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's, yeah, car yeah, wash is, is, I think, the most complicated element in the film. But Brazil, since the 60s, since the construction of Brasilia, and actually since the 40s, according to some, had a scheme through which politicians would manage to raise money for their campaigns, which, I mean, the lobby that happens here in the United States, which is legal, in Brazil it's illegal, and it would happen through a scheme that usually involved construction companies and Petrobras. So Petrobras, which is our national oil company, which was the hugest company in the country, I think it still is, would have money to make new constructions, new platforms, oil, like to expand its oil infrastructure. And it would make a deal with the construction company to do that and give a percentage, which was usually two to one percent, to political parties from that construction, with the condition that then the party would finance the campaigns of the politicians. Mm. That system was kind of continued unquestioned for decades. And there were some corruption investigations that almost managed to unveil it. But the system worked in such a way that as soon as they managed to show that there was a politician involved, it went to the Supreme Court and then it would dissipate. But Judge Morrow, who was the judge responsible for car wash, managed quite wisely to kind of unconstruct that barrier by first not allowing the businessmen when they were doing plea bargains to mention the politicians. And when they did, he separated all that and gave it to the Supreme Court at the same time that he allowed for leaks mm -hmm. to happen so that the public opinion became completely in favor of the investigation. And he became kind of a hero in many ways. So the investigation managed for the first time to unveil this corruption scheme, which was great. But what was complicated was that there were some illegal things that were done along the way. Like, for example, one that I show in the film is he wanted to, to investigate Lula. So instead of asking for Lula, who was Brazil's president, quite successful, once called by Obama the greatest political leader in the world. So he wanted to investigate Lula. Instead of asking Lula, Lula, would you come? And I want to interrogate you. He coerced him which was illegal for no reason. So that was the first public illegality of the investigation. And then he recorded a conversation between Lula and Dilma and leaked it, mm -hmm. which was also illegal. And that was kind of instrumental for the impeachment to start because it delegitimized Lula and Dilma, which were 
both doing something incorrect at that moment because Dilma was naming Lula her chief of staff, mm-hmm. possibly to protect herself from impeachment because of his political ability, but it was also possibly to protect him from imprisonment in a moment where many, many politicians were going to prison. Then Car Wash continued and took many politicians to jail. One audio leak that I show in the film that is quite revealing is that there are very important politicians speaking to each other and saying, we have to take Dilma out of power or else we're all going to go to jail because she's not stopping the investigations. And that was the case. I mean, the the investigations were taking many politicians to jail and possibly another Brazilian president would have just stopped the investigations right there. And she didn't. She allowed them to continue. And the greatest confusion is that the public felt that Dilma was being impeached for corruption. And it was only when I got into Congress that I understood that she was being impeached for budget maneuvering, which meant that she was lending money from banks to herself, to the government, to kind of... Fill in budget gaps. Exactly. To pretend that there was no budget gap. So the fact that this cloud, this kind of fictional reason of corruption was created and people believed she was being impeached for corruption when she wasn't, and she was actually the one not allowing the corruption investigation to stop, is quite an interesting paradox. Yeah. Yeah. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Petra Costa, whose new film is The Edge of Democracy. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Claire Vay Watkins here with us, and she's going to give us a book recommendation. Claire, what are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore, a book of nonfiction by Elizabeth Rush. So this is like an exciting book, not only because it has a, these really compelling um, stories about um, American climate refugees and people who ha- their lives have already been disrupted by rising seas and um, other climate catastrophes, but also she's kind of trying to see if there's a way that creative nonfiction can convey this problem in a, in a not, she, she uses a lot of um, like first person narratives. She weaves them in so that the people, their voices are a big, big part of the book and it's really powerful and it helped me understand on an emotional level these phenomenons and um, I think it, it's a uh, pretty powerful. The, the epigraph is from Simone Weil, um, mm-hmm. Attention is Prayer. And I, I felt that way. I had to read it slowly, but I, I paid close attention and I felt sort of spiritually nourished by the experience in the end. Wow. Um, well, that sounds fantastic. Would you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes, it is Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore by Elizabeth Rush, published by uh, Milkweed Editions. Thank you so much, Claire. That was Claire Vay Watkins recommending Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore by Elizabeth Rush. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Petra Costa, whose film is The Edge of Democracy. So 
so one of the things that you talk about in the film is that the first time you could vote, you were eligible to vote, you voted for Lula, right? And that you describe that as like an incredible moment in kind of something probably similar to in our lifetimes, uh, Medea, to the election of Barack Obama, right? Exactly. A really transcendently hopeful figure. Exactly. How did you navigate the difference between like that person as you understood him when you elected him and voted for him and like Lula as you know him now? Is there a loss of faith? Is there a loss of hope? Or is it this guy was doing the best he could within a corrupt system? You know, like how do you deal with that? I think it was really, I feel very lucky to have lived through such a transformative period in Brazilian history. I grew up feeling that hunger would never finish in Brazil, Mm. that the level of misery that we had was something that was just unchangeable. And when he was elected president and and managed to change that was revolutionary in many ways. And it's quite unfortunate that the political system was so corrupt and that he had to make and decided to make deals because what I believe is that it was possible for Lula to have changed the political system at the height of his popularity. Mm. But he he thinks he, it was not possible. It's a question that is hard to answer. Yeah, It's kind of the challenge of any politician, right? Will you confront the system or will you give in to yeah. the system? And I think he decided to give in to the system to make sure that he would make the social changes he wanted to make. I see. And it's it's Sophie's choice. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, one of the very moving things, speaking of Lula, in the film is when you, you in, the, in the documentary, you are very often in crowds. You're very often among mm. protesters. But you also speak with people individually about their experiences with the government. And many of these people are weeping because of the opportunities that Lula's government had given to them. How, well, one, how did you navigate being uh, with among all of these people? How did that feel? And then also, what was it like to have these conversations constantly about different political opinions, different ideas, people on different sides, people arguing? It, it just, it felt like you could tear you apart in some ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was very inspired by a documentary uh, that was done in Chile in the 70s called Battle of Chile by Patricio Guzman. And it, what fascinated me in that film is that it managed to cover the coup that happened in Chile in all levels, in the streets, in the unions, in the Congress, with the president. Mm. And so I knew that when I was making this film mm. that I wanted to cover these levels to talk about have Brazil as the character and I remember when I was pitching the film people were like you should just focus on filming Lula and Dilma and I was like no I want to feel the streets I want to feel how this is happening in all different levels of Brazilian society and I discovered so much being in the streets I discovered how little actually Lula and Dilma were able to communicate that social transformations that they did were done by the government. Most people mm-hmm. that got richer felt they got richer because of self mm-hmm. uh, They did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Self-achievement. And, and that was quite tragic, I think. And so they managed to help people buy and, and, and yeah, have like income. 
but they lost their minds to evangelical churches, to the televisions. Like they're, they didn't really manage to politicize the, their achievement. Yeah. And when the impeachment process began and the political crisis began, people very easily bought into the idea that the corruption was all the work of the Workers' Party and that they were getting poorer and poorer because of the corruption when it was actually much more complex than that. Mm -hmm. And also, one thing that I really lament is how they... I mean, in a country that has a history of so many coups, I understand why they feared challenging the status quo. But there, that fear led to many tragic things, as, for example, not wanting to challenge the military who had been in power uh, f during the military coup for many years and had tortured and killed people, uh, while Argentina and Chile made trials that actually brought these torturers to prison and and made it clear for, for the population that this was not all right, that the military rule was not okay. In Brazil, we decided to forget and and have kind of a pact of, of mutual forgiveness for both sides. And that meant that until today, Sao Paulo has about 300 streets that are named after military people who tortured and killed people. And and that meant that in 2016, when people were lost faith in the political class because of the corruption scandals, they many started asking for the return of the military. Yeah. And you see that in the film. Yeah. You know, to move, as we kind of like wrap up, to move outside of the context of Brazil, as I'm watching the movie, these the rhetoric about two Brazils fighting disinformation, all of that stuff. It feels incredibly present, not just to U.S. politics, but in general. If you look at the kind of sweep of the conservative right, the kind of increasing march of authoritarians, you know, around the world, um, and I'm thinking, sorry, of the of the right in um, in Europe right now. So do you see, obviously, Brazil's situation right now is historically specific to Brazil, like it has its own history that's produced this moment. But do you see like the stuff that you document in the movie as actually part of a global trend of upheaval and uncertainty and division? Yes, definitely. I think the book How Democracies Die by Stephen Davitsky and mm, Zibla, yes. I really recommend yeah. because it shows how all over the world, we are eroding our democracies through what he calls constitutional hardballing, I think, mm. uh, which is kind of pushing to the limits of the constitution to destroy your opponents, your political mm. opponents. And that has been done here in the United States. It was done in Brazil. And that creates the perfect scenario for authoritarian leaders to rise. And what he says that is fascinating in this book is to avoid that, you have to have alliances, alliances between the Christian conservatives and possibly their lifetime enemies that are the socialists mm -hmm. to avoid mm -hmm. the rise of a demagogue. Mm. And, and that's kind of counterintuitive because yeah. people, I mean, in Brazil, you're like, okay, Lula did all these these alliances now we want a left that is pure and radical yeah yeah and that can lead to even more radicalism on the other side so it's 
it's an interesting perspective. Do you have hope for Brazil moving forward? I know that's a difficult question to ask you, but it is a question that I think the film leaves us with at the end as we see the kind of the ghosted rise of Jair Bolsonaro. Yes. Well, my hope is that more and more young people are becoming politicized and are understanding that our democracy is at risk mm -hmm. and and that the responsibility is in our own hands to kind of reclaim it, be it by running for Congress, being by really trying to have a more vibrant and active civil society. Mm. So here in the United States with all the young women and, and people of color that are running for Congress, I mean, my hope lies there, I think. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. I wanted to ask you how you see your family in moving forward. Mm. Because, again, as we said earlier, you know, your family is a big part of this film. Your mom, there's a moment where mom, your mom meets Dilma and they talk. Um, and there's some parallels there between the way that your family is structured and the politics in Brazil. <laughs> Personally, how do, you, what, how do you see your family moving forward and navigating this moment? Like you said, there's some members of our family that voted for Bolsonaro. Yeah. Is that as divisive in that situation as it might be some members of the family voting for Trump? Yes, maybe even more. Really? I think, I mean, as I say in the film, uh, he defended uh, the military that and it kind of defended the idea that people like my parents should have died and been, been killed. So that's quite extreme. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm going to show the film to my family in about two days. Oh, they and haven't seen it? No. And I think what I can say about that is just I want to engage in conversation with them and I want to be able to engage in kind of nonviolent conversation with them and try to try to not take their view for granted mm -hmm. and mm. and be able to come to a place where we can hopefully look at the fundamental values of democracy beyond our partisan discordances or disagreements and with that create a little hope in the future that okay can we agree that this is necessary mm -hmm. moving forward so that we can find a way forward and agree that we can't take democracy for granted yeah Thank you so much, Petra. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. This was great. We've been speaking with Petra Costa, director most recently of The Edge of Democracy. The documentary is currently streaming on Netflix in over 190 countries. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 